Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder at Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. Welcome back to Dig In. This week, we're talking to Ajit Guman. Uh, he's a subject matter expert in SaaS pricing strategy. I know it sounds exciting, but it's a big deal. It's really hard uh, to try to price SaaS products. And that's exactly why, why he's written his wildly popular book, Price to Scale. Uh, it's going to be the inspiration behind this conversation today. And in Price to Scale, uh, he captures, he deals with a whole bunch of different issues, including, you know, how they should price the good, better, best dogma, how they should uh, do testing around the pricing strategies that they're coming to market with. And this sort of just in general, how seriously you should take your pricing strategy. And that kind of leads to one of the first questions that I'd like to ask. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Ajit. Um, before we get into why you wrote the book, I just kind of kind of talk about how seriously do you think most companies are taking how they price their SaaS products. Hey Ian, uh, thanks so much for having me having me speak to you today. Um, I actually, you know, I've I've had this observation about many software companies that pricing is for the most part for them an afterthought. They kind of create the product, they sell it, and at the end of uh, you know the moment they have to sell it to a customer, they're like, oh well, how do we price it? Okay, well here's the ballpark. And they keep and they keep punting that problem down the road until it becomes uh, a really big problem, and you have to do a massive strategic overhaul and bring some consultants in because the pricing doesn't scale and it bottle creates further bottlenecks for sales. So uh, I would say eighty to ninety percent of companies consider it maybe exceptionally hard, and as a result, uh, it remains an afterthought for them. So is that what led you to write this book, Price to Scale? That's partly why I wrote the book. Uh, one of the other reasons was that I was in the midst of this overhaul uh, for my own company. And uh, that was one of the key reasons that I was even hired. When I was exploring the topic of pricing in more detail, I, I saw that in the industry today, and if you search, just search on Google, search on Google SaaS pricing strategy, you'll find 20 articles that go something like this. The top seven pricing strategies or the top 11 pricing strategies. And then you open and it gives you vague names of cost plus and this plus or segmented. And there are all these names that somebody's just come up with, with no context on strategy, with no understanding on how this is actually to be implemented. And, uh, I, I went. I, I learned that a lot of the people who said and who created those articles did not even know themselves. So uh, I, I got super confused. And uh, when I implemented pricing and I learned about it, I basically approached it from a first principles perspective. And then I felt like I think a basic book needs to exist because that's the book I was trying to find when I was doing this project. Great. I mean, I kept, you talked a little bit about what you were facing. I kept your intro really short because I wanted to get into this question, but I mean, you, you know, you've helped firms like Medallia, HelpShift, Feedseye, um, and right now you're at 
Narvar. Is that that's the correct pronunciation? Yes. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Narvar. Yeah, so Narvar, my role is uh, broader. Uh, I'm I'm looking on all of product marketing, so not just pricing, but uh, I look into our you know, three product lines. And so I've always approached the product marketing role that I've been in for the last eight plus years as a role that is about differentiation. So how do we differentiate our product in the market? How do we talk about value in the context of everybody else, every other competitor in the market, every other alternative? That's that's what I do here. Um, and that's, that's the value-based framework that I even took to the pricing work when I did do pricing. Excellent. And so... You talked a little bit about uh, that company sort of, it's an afterthought. I don't know anybody who would have done that. Yeah. You know what? I think we all kind of fall into that trap. I know when we designed Upside, you know, we originally designed the platform. Uh, we didn't even have tiering of features. And like, yeah. I kind of wish I'd picked up your book while we were still in the build phase, but beyond just kind of making sure that you're building a, a piece of software that can actually have variance in price, you know, what, what are the other things that companies should be doing to take their pricing more seriously? Yeah, I think uh, there are two things that basically anybody can start doing to start uh, getting a little bit more smarter. One is just look at how your pricing is performing. So basic analytics and math, look at your past two or three quarters of information Look at your uh, look at how what sort of deals you've sold. Look at if you have a discounting policy, just see how the discounting has gone over the packages that you do have. Uh, look at the uh, you know you can calculate a per unit metric. So if you are selling in batches of units, do a dollar per unit and see how that curve uh, scales through your own uh, customer base. That may give you some basic understanding. Uh, if you see a lot of discounting, that may say that that may point that you need to strengthen your discounting rules such that you have more predictable pricing. If you have, if you are a, the size of the companies you sell to and the ARR that they bring in are well correlated, well, then that's good news. But if they are not correlated and sales is just selling ad hoc, that means you have a lot of room for improvement. In either case, having a sense of the data will just help you understand where you are put you on some firm footing. That's one thing. Then the second thing is um, when you're doing product development discussions, just try to make a hypothesis around pricing for every new product that you work on. Just say, well, we think this is the value. It's going to generate X, 4X more ROI for customers, 100% more conversions, whatever be the case, whatever you think your product will do and come up with a hypothetical number for the new product, the price point when you are developing it, uh, but not at the end. Don't leave it for the salesperson to decide. Right. Yeah. Don't leave it up to the salesperson to decide. I mean, you know, there. that's a good point. You know, we just, Megan and I, um, sorry, Megan, our director of marketing, who's actually on this call, but stays quiet. Um, except for when she's doing the interviews, uh, she, uh, you know, she was in a meeting with me today. We had a whole bunch of people in our meeting today about, you know, what's our pricing strategy going to be Jan 1st, uh, 2022, you know, what, how are we going to change it? And there was a lot of voices in that room. Who do you think the right people have in that room are? Who are the people in the company who should really be involved in pricing discussions and decisions? Right. Um, I think. See, there are people who, 
feed you definitely need feedback from so i would not say sales should not be considered in fact many times the sales team is the team that gets you the most closest you know ear to the ground feedback from the market uh, but in terms of who leads such a project is generally a strategic function uh, that does not have quarter on over quarter number tied to their backs so marketing uh, or you know maybe a op- biz ops function uh, mostly it's marketing or biz ops that i've seen product management could also be like they have similar sort of uh, similar sort of incentives uh, but it's just sometimes product teams lack the experience but either of these three teams would work uh, under under some sort of executive sponsorship from the ceo or ceo and then what is critical is to have uh, feedback councils from the mix of the customers customer success people as well as sales people so that you're testing and you're learning from the market and from your customer success teams and sales teams you're testing whether what you want to do you can actually do it so that you can scale your sales engine which is also sometimes uh, not considered that well you can also equally end up in complete strategy land and not be able to consider the operational ramifications of this process which are many and many times take a lot more time than the development of the strategy itself so narvar is very lucky that they happen to have a pricing expert as their head of product marketing but in other companies who is normally the person where does the buck stop like who's the person who ultimately makes the call because as you know, with all these kinds of really uh, strategic and important decisions, particularly pricing, what's going to go on your website? How are you going to communicate it? Is it going to be a good, better, best model? Are you going to have a modular model? Which, by the way, read read uh, Ajit's book if you're not sure what, what those things mean. But um, who's normally in charge of that pricing decision in your experience? I think marketing is generally marketing and or product marketing is generally the quarterback. Uh, I would say that the CEO really is the decider, or at least the person who needs to sign off. As much as the CEO understands that this is a high leverage item that they can use to go back to the board, increase the valuation of the company with much, very little change in any other system in the organization or any other hiring of people. So if the CEO understands that over, not only at one time, but over time, this is a very high leverage area and that understanding of leverage is there, I think they're gonna be more interested in looking at what the team comes up with. And, uh, and I think between product management teams and marketing teams, the right, Options can definitely be presented, but I do think that the CEO needs to have skin in the game. So, so let's talk about what I just touched on there a moment again, ago. Yeah. Um, you know, really, you kind of put forward two main models. I mean, you, you, there's other ways that people can price, obviously, but yeah. there was two main models that you kind of focused on in your book. One was this good, better, best, and the other one was mod sort of a modular approach. Can you just lay that out for people really simply what those two things mean? Yeah, that that, that is uh, my model on just the packages. I would say, if you let me zoom out for one moment, the key decisions that one has to make in their pricing revamp or price, you know, anytime you're looking at pricing is four, four decisions, packaging, pricing uh, metric, pricing structure, and then the price point, right? So, so now we're starting with the packaging. Within packaging, um, one is the model that we hear quite a lot, good, good, better, best. We hear it all the time. 
And then I call the alternative a more simpler modular approach or what other people call a Chinese menu approach, which is just really one plan with a lot of add-ons. Uh, and then there is a wide spectrum of area between that, right? You can have five plans, you can have two plans and so on. But the idea is to make you understand the trade-offs. And the thing with good, better, best is that it's sort of become uh, an unnecessary dogma in the industry because uh, you see a lot of companies start pricing and they say, oh, well, I need, because I need pricing, I need a pricing page that needs to have a good, better, best plan. And okay, here are the features. Uh, here is my essentials pro elite plan and I'm gonna distribute features some, some, some sort of ad hoc way. So that's really uh, a backwards way of doing it. I think what companies need to understand is that you have to start with the number of market segments you have, design the right offers for these market segments that really fit them well. And that automatically will tell you how many plans you need. If you're purely an enterprise company that is selling to verticals that may pay you very different amounts of money, let's say financial services and retail, one is very cost conscious, price conscious, the other is not. Uh, the other may need much more security features. So you may create slightly different offerings with very different price points. And I saw that happening at Medallia to one company will sell roughly the same product to half a million dollars and $15 million from a financial services company. So that's the art of software pricing. You can make a lot of money if you do it a little bit intelligently. Um, and so if you create a good, better, best plan in that sort of market, you're just sort of um, anchoring yourself in one position and you may end up leaving money on the table. So, uh, and a case in point, when I was writing the book, I spoke to a lot of pricing leaders um, and I spoke to Johnny Cheng, who is now at Coupa, but he used to be at Gainsight. What he saw with the good, better, best model at Gainsight was that um, only one of the plans was even being used on a quarterly basis, which was their middle plan. And uh, the sales team didn't really know that, you know, they just were selling both three plans to the mid market. So you had three plans for one segment. <laughs> As, as a result, uh, a lot of the features were shelfware. They could not be upsold, and uh, they didn't even uh, weren't able to make the right amount of money when it was sold the first time. So he was able to fix that at that company, and uh, that just points that it's not always going to work out well. But you, if you start from first principles, if you start looking at the market segments first, design the right offer for every segment, and then look at the packages, then look at the add-ons. That's going to get you get you much further than just starting from a final product in mind. That's really interesting. I think you may, there's a whole bunch of things there that you said that I'd like to touch on really quickly. Yeah. Uh, one was the example that you talked about where it's like, you know, it's a similar product, but you're, you're selling to two very different market segments. You use the example of retail and financial uh, FIs. In that case, I'm assuming that they would both have been enterprise level and that probably wouldn't have been a published price on the website anyways. That yes, that it was not a published price. Yes, exactly. And it's not always obvious that it should be published. Right. So, so I, and I think you made a really good case about that in your book as well. You said you, you really, you know, in many cases, it's going to work against you to publish prices for, for all your levels. Um, but let's talk about the good, better, best for a second there, because yep. I'm, I'm going to get back to what, something that I found particularly impressive as somebody who's, you know, a market researcher. Now I work in SAS, but uh, for years have been a market researcher. You know, you talked about two different test, uh, testing methodologies, 
at a very in-depth level, by the way, very impressive in your book, which was A, Van Westendorp, uh, which is a pricing methodology where you basically try to get this range of acceptable prices where you say, you know, would, what would be a price that would be so cheap that you'd question its quality? What's a price that's too high? And then you try to find, anyways, there's four questions. Right, right. But, and then the other one is uh, conjoint, which is a very, very robust yet complex method to say, what's the right combination of, uh, you know, of attributes or features right. in this case, if we're talking right. about uh, that where people would pay for it. And you're going to end up with utilities around the features so that you can actually move features between buckets. Let's say it's good, better, best in a way that's meaningful. Right. And I thought that was a really interesting insight because I think the challenge, I know we've had it, is um, how do you create meaningful differentiation between your three levels? And I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong in assuming they can do three levels is do people really value that particular feature of your software enough to put it in a different, in a different bucket, right? Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of, of, you know, A, getting those buckets right, and B, how you even ascertain what should be important enough to talk about in terms of a, a tiered feature. Right, right. Yeah, so so, I, so yeah, you're, you're right that once you have a hypothesis for your plans, you have to test it. And there are many options to test it. If you are a company like a Netflix or a Zoom, you're going to have a very large sample of size of customers. You'll probably want to do a survey sort of approach. Uh, so Van Westendorf is only given to give you visibility into things like uh, price points, maybe not the, the packages. Conjoint will help you get information on what is the right package and what's the take rate and which package might be able to get you more revenue. That's at a large scale. But um, I've been more running uh, uh, primary research sort of uh, decks where I take in front of my own clients my hypothetical uh, packages, and I force them to choose. Like, spend it take assume you have hundred bucks, spend hundred bucks across three plans. Choose the one that fits you the best. Okay, uh, let's take one plan. Now, tell me the feature that if I removed it, you wouldn't mind at all. Tell me the feature that you would really have a problem with if I removed it. Now, many times you have a gut feeling and intuition if you. You know, if you are if you have a bunch of customers and you have customer empathy, it's really at the edges is where you're testing that out. You're really not testing it at the very base level, uh, and very soon with uh, not a lot of sample size in sort of sort of the B two B companies that I've worked at, I've been able to sort of gauge gauge where the value is. So that's one one way to test um, and make sure that there is differentiation and make sure that there is not going to be shelfware. And they're not the only people to test with. I would also test with our sales team. And you ask similar things, but the questions may be a little different because many times they can sell the same product without three more features, right? They can, sales is really good at positioning products. Uh, they may, you know, you give them a package to sell, they'll sell it, but you remove three features, they may still sell it for the same price. Uh, and then you can reserve those three features for your upsell, upsell flows. So there you're sort of understanding what should be the first set of features to be offered, what is generally the need, 
because uh, that's the only features they're showing in a demo. They're not showing all of the features to the prospect. Some features can be introduced in your upsell flows and that that's something you want. You don't want to give the whole house away in, you know, in the front, uh, the first time you make a sale. So, so many ways to test, but testing is definitely required, whether you do it in survey form or, uh, or a manual form and, and different people to test with as well. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Um, look, I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit complicated. We're getting to the weeds a little bit, but yep. it's something because that it's close to us in terms of something that we've had to deal with, which is the idea of, of usage-based pricing. Yep. And you, you know, you talk in your book about things where let's say you plug into another, in, in, you know, another piece of software has a variable cost within your software, like you're plugging into mm -hmm, an API mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. and you're paying for call. Right. Um, and, it, and it to the point where it becomes meaningful. Right. You know, in, in res tech, which is market research tech, our variable cost is sample. It's the people who go in to take right. this. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, usage-based pricing and, right. and, and sort of when you need to use it and, and what that yeah. means in terms of how you're going to, how you're going to price. Right. Right. Uh, very often, uh, so there is one very often case where you will see a lot of companies use usage-based pricing like you were just alluding to, is where the cost of delivering the service does not follow a diminishing return pattern. <coughs> Excuse me. That means if you are if your sample is, let's say, 1,000 respondents or 10,000 respondents, you're still going to pay every respondent. Uh, and then you, that means you cannot offer volume discounts. It's not, it's not like any other piece of software because any other piece of software, you pay just a fixed cost for hosting and so, you know, all of, all of the cloud fees. And after that, it just runs, you can sell the same thing for a hundred thousand or a million people and it's marginal difference in cost. So when your cost scales like that, many companies will want to do usage-based pricing. Think about Amazon, like they offer infrastructure layer products, their costs scale. In your case, your costs also scale. So that's one area where usage-based pricing will be need, like that's the only way you can actually sell that piece of the service and also make money at your end. So that's in one way cost plus pricing. The other thing, but that's not the only case to, you know, that that's, that's the most obvious uh, time when you use it and you have to. The other time when you should use it where you can get a lot of leverage is when the usage is directly correlated to how the customer measures ROI. So think about game, games, video games. Uh, uh, video games are played by millions and tens of millions of people. Uh, so at HelpShift, which was the company I was at prior, their head of revenue changed the metric of the product from users to 100,000 MAU per 100,000 MAU of the gaming application. That simple change caused us to make up to 10x more revenue from these accounts. And they were happy to pay because they had tens and hundreds of millions of users and MAU, right? And uh, they had small customer service teams. So had we priced like other customer service solutions by agent or user, we would not have made much money and they don't really have big customer service teams to begin with, but they have a lot of consumers. And if you price proportionate to them, and as much as you can measure it, you can get monetize a lot of that value. That's the other way where usage-based pricing is really helpful is for you to scale, scale with the customer. Um, 
the the old way of doing usage based pricing is just by sizing a company right you are a big company big size you'll pay more you're a small company small size pay less but you you couldn't architect or instrument it you were not being able to collect the data now with all these digital products you can so so it's just giving us more ways to price better and more more gran granularity to do with it the only caveat i would say on usage based pricing is that it's not the end all and be all again today i'm seeing a lot of noise in the market and people saying oh oh usage based pricing they're sort of creating buzzwords out of everything and again it's uh, it's one tool in your toolbox capability based pricing is very helpful too like you have let's say you have a survey product and you have areas where you are maybe collaborating internally maybe you have analytics those all are capabilities right you can still price those things with capability and you can still charge a uh, usage based metric for your survey respondents so you can have a mix uh, if you look at zora they do this subscription newsletter and they talk about their insights they also say that a mix of capability and usage is probably going to get you the best results so you know i'm not i'm a proponent of not being dogmatic but there are certain tools that gets you certain results yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting tension right because Again, I'll fall back on ResTech because it's the world I know. I haven't, I've read your book, but I haven't talked to all the people you've spoken to. Um, you know, the case of the, the price per seat model, like, I, yeah. I don't know if it's a trend in general, but I mean, it, it's a real turnoff for a lot of people yeah. when they want to be able to share things across their organization, but not all those people are going to be using the software to the same level. And so particularly if you've got a usage-based model, it seems like, the price per seat model, those two things don't necessarily go together. Do you, do you think that's-, that's Yeah, agreed, agreed, agreed. Um, you may not, if your differentiator is more adoption inside an organization, you may not want to price per seat. Uh, again, uh, but at the same time, company like Slack does that, right? That's how they monetize. They don't monetize by number of message. So the caveat there is, it also has to be easy for your customer to understand. Uh, that's when you can do it. Uh, one place, so I used to work at a company called Medallia. We used to sell market, re uh, sort of a market research product for large hotel chains and retailers. We used to uh, score, uh, we used to price based on the number of locations these businesses had, but not users. That let us support up to 50,000 users at a company like Hilton uh, or 2,000 users like in a financial services company for a similar amount of prices because it was like per location or per unit and we had to define unit in a specific way. So there's a, you know, again, you, just like usage-based pricing, per user pricing is another dogma that you have to really look at, like, does it get you to where you want to go? I mean, where do you see the trends going in terms of these things? Like, are you noticing some models becoming more or less popular or have things not really changed you know, is it still good, better, best, and that's what it's going to be for the next? No, year. actually, things have been changing. Uh, in fact, I there is a chart that recently come out. I'm just trying to pull it up so I can give you the stats. Uh, so, I there is a company. There's a Matrix Partners. They did a survey recently, and in that survey, basically, companies say 41% of companies are still doing per seat pricing, and 25% are doing some sort of usage-based metric. And then there is all other types like database sizes, total employees, people are still doing total employees or modules or functionality. So I think, I think that's an interesting mix. 
I would anticipate the per seat model to reduce even further because I would anticipate it to reduce because a lot of our products are automation products. And if it's an automation product, it's not really, you know, you, you're not really expanding your seat size too much. You are maybe adding some other value. So it's about the value that you're delivering at the end of the day. And usage-based pricing isn't really always proportional to the, uh, the value, but it is a reasonable proxy for sizing if you have nothing else. Cool. The last thing I want to talk about, you know, before I, before I let you go, because uh, I know you're a busy guy, but um, is, is the role of discounting. Because I mm -hmm. think what we, we have a perception that we're putting a pricing up on a website. We probably aren't uh, disclosing our enterprise price, but even still, and then we've got to make sure that the sales team has, you know, the leeway to discount because it's, it, it plays an important role. Like what, you know, you talk to the, in your book, you say that discounting can be up to 80% in some cases. Yep. Yep. Never happens for my company, no clients. Um, but, uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about how do you, how do you properly empower a sales team to discount appropriately and properly? properly? Right. Um, I think the first thing to note is that discounting is a benefit that we have in sort of B2B sales that is not available in B2C. B2C, you really have to get your price points right uh, across your segments. In B2B, you can use the power of discounting to find the right price point within a certain band. So that's why from a strategic point, uh, standpoint, I feel discounting really helps some sort of wider bands help so that you can discover your price points. Now, that being said, uh, the other thing that discounting adds in your sales process is a little bit of friction. If without discounting, uh, and let's say uh, you had a model that had un infinite discounting, sales group discount, whatever, they would, they would be under, you know, they would be really <laughs> reducing the price at the end of the quarter to make the deal, uh, just to make just the way that they're compensated. With discounting now that adds friction and an approval process so that they only do it when it is really required. That's really the goal of discounting. The levels at which uh, they are able to do it, generally SMB deals, not a lot of discounting. Enterprise deals, it can, like I was saying, it can go as high as 80%. Really depends on what the situation is. Uh, something like 80% is likely something a CEO or a CFO somewhere approved. But... Uh, at least it forced the salesperson to make a case <clears throat> to their executive team that this is why the discount needs to happen. And so that's why it's a feature, it's not a bug. And allowing for uh, discounting that is not too strict or uh, not too loose is gonna help you in, the, in, in running a good sales process. Right, excellent. I, that, that's sort of my, my last main question. My, something just to leave on because I just thought it was a really interesting insight that you called out um, was the idea that, you know, you put forward that you should charge, even if it's a nominal amount, even if it's a small amount for trial plans hmm. to weed out low potentials. And I think, I think it was in your, the number that you'd, you'd uh, quoted, I think, or maybe I got this from another source, I'm not sure, but only about 4% of free trials actually convert was that right right now no, the statistics if you go in different places one place versus the other statistics do change 
uh, but not by that much. So somebody will say two, somebody will say four, somebody may say eight. I mean, sure. I guess eight is probably really high. Uh, so yeah, if you have a if you have a large market and your cost to serve the free customers is low, then maybe that's fine. <clears throat> maybe that's where you build like a product-led growth engine. But for many other cases, uh, it it may just overburden you. You you will have your whole marketing team focusing on the leads from these. Uh, this segment, this segment will have a high cost to serve. You'll be fixing the needs of the, the free segment. Your engineering team will work on it. And then if the conversion is not good enough and, and you also have an enterprise segment to cater to, well, then you just spend an over, you know, just too much time and too much money on a segment that may not convert for you. So I liked, and I think this is where you're referencing this from. I liked uh, the example of Ahref which is an SEO company and they, they charge like a seven bucks fee. Uh, I guess they're able to charge that because they also have a pretty good product. They're known to have a good SEO product. And even for their trial, they charge, I think it's one buck a day for seven days or something like that. So if you like it, there's, there's only a way that you will, if you have some conviction, that's why you will use the free trial. If you're just a passerby, they're not going to offer it. Uh, likely maybe that because uh, they were, probably just spending too much investment in uh, making sure there is a good experience for all the free customers, right? And if they get just too many of that, that economics just change. So that's, I, I found that that was interesting. It need not be totally free. It could be something nominal to uh, qualify true interest. Yeah, I love that point. I mean, you had a lot of really great points in your book. That one, that one alone was worth the price for me, Ajit. Um, Thanks so much for your time today. I could talk to you all day, but I'm not going to get free consulting out of you. That wouldn't be right. But um, in case people want to reach out to you, what's the best ways they can reach out to you? Yeah, LinkedIn is great, Ajit Kuman. Um, uh, or you can go to the website, pricetoscale.com. Uh, if you want to grab a copy of the book, just search for SaaS pricing on Amazon. It's the first book you'll see. And are you going to write another one? Because... I had a lot of, I still have some questions. How do I tie it to compensation? You, there's a lot more you can deal with. So yes, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, I, I hope to, I hope to. Yeah, I have some some plans in the future. Uh, some of those relate to pricing operations, which I feel is uh, also a little bit overlooked and probably uh, more, if you don't get that right, all of the good work done here sometimes can fall flat. So I have some some ideas. Great. Thanks so much for your time today. Hope to talk to you really soon. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.